Well, let's turn to Genesis chapter 15. We're going through a series on the life of Abraham. Genesis 15 is our chapter for this morning. Now, in this chapter is one of the most important verses in not just the whole Old Testament, but as I was thinking about it, it's really in the whole, whole Bible. One of the most important verses. And so I hope that you will walk away this morning gripped by this verse, like maybe you've never been gripped before, and that you will spend time thinking about this verse, praying over this verse, memorizing this verse, meditating deeply upon this verse. This verse gives the foundation for the entire Christian life. If we don't get this verse, you will not have a Christian life. It's all built upon the truth that's in this verse. So let's take a look at what Moses writes in Genesis 15. And as we start to read the first few verses, what we see is that Abram is struggling to trust one of God's promises. Start with verse 1. What promise was he struggling to believe? Look at verse 1. Moses writes, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Okay, so here God comes to Abram and he repeats the promise that he's going to greatly reward Abram. There's a problem though, because the rewards that God had listed, most of them have to do with having children. God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Well, that involves offspring. And God had said, in one of your grandchildren, great, 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 great grandchildren, people from every ethnic group, every language group, every tribal group will come to faith, salvation, be forgiven. So Abram knew that having a child was a crucial part of this promise, and we see that that's the promise he was struggling to trust in verses 2 and 3. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. That was one of Abram's servants. Verse 3, and Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring, and just a member of my household at this point will be my heir. So again, Abram at this point is 75 years old. His wife has never gotten pregnant, can't conceive. She's barren, we read earlier in Genesis. And so Abram is struggling to believe that God is going to fulfill his promises. Now, as we've seen already in the life of Abraham, God loves to come to us when we are weak and struggling in faith. Don't you love that? And we see that again in the next verses. How did God strengthen Abram's faith? Look at verses 4 through 6. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he, God, brought him, Abram, outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. One, two, three, four, five. Abram, okay. Then he, God, said to him, so shall your offspring be. So God strengthens Abram's faith by repeating the promise, I'm going to give you a son, Abram. I understand you're 75 years old. 
I understand that Sarah's never gotten pregnant. I will give you a son. Think of how that would strengthen Abram's faith. And then to strengthen his faith even more, God takes him outside and says, look at the stars, count them. I'm going to give you more offspring than you could ever count. So I love how gracious and merciful God is to us when we struggle in our faith. So Abram had been struggling. Don't have any children, 75 years old. My wife is is barren. God's promised children. I'm not sure how's this going to happen, God. You haven't done this yet. I'm still childless. God says, I will give you offspring, more than you can count, just like the stars. And so how does Abram respond? Verse 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. God counted his faith to him as righteousness. Now, this is the verse that I believe is one of the most important verses, not just in the Old Testament, but in the Bible. It's quoted numerous times in the New Testament. Paul, Hebrews, James, very powerful verse. Now, what is this verse saying? Because it's easy to misunderstand this verse. But rightly understanding this verse gives us the rock-solid foundation for our assurance that we can be forgiven and righteous before a holy, just God, even though we've been sinful. This gives us the rock-solid assurance that we can be righteous before God. And it answers the question, how? So what is this verse saying? First, it is saying that righteousness is important. It's clearly an implication. Moses writes this verse, Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. That shows that righteousness is important. Why? We've already seen that back in Genesis chapter 6. Remember, at that time, no one on earth was righteous except for Noah and possibly his family. Remember that? No one else was righteous. Everyone else had turned their backs upon God disobeying God, not thanking God, not loving God, not worshiping God, not depending upon God, sinning against God. Everyone else was unrighteous. Only Noah and maybe his family were righteous. And so what happened? God is a just and a holy God. And God has given us a picture of his judgment in the the flood that God brought upon all those except Noah and his family. Remember, God had Noah build the ark for Noah and his family. They got into the ark along with two of every animal, and then God poured out rain upon the earth, and everyone else on the earth was killed, punished by God because they were unrighteous. How important is it that you be righteous? There is nothing, nothing more important Let me put it this way. Every single one of us right now are either righteous in God's eyes or we are unrighteous in God's eyes. There's no kind of, sort of, you're either righteous or you are not. Every one of us in this room. And depending on whether you're righteous or not determines your eternity. God is a just and a holy God and he must punish unrighteousness. And every one of us are in one camp 
or the other, righteous or unrighteous. So, this verse is saying that righteousness is important. Now, the question then is, how do we become righteous? The verse says, Abram believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. You could think that what this verse is saying is that Abram was righteous because he has perfectly righteous faith. We could think wrongly, but we could think that's what this verse is saying. We could think that God looked down upon Abram and said, Wow, that faith is strong faith. That faith is pure faith. That faith that's, that's humble faith. That is righteous faith. Uh, that's righteous. We could think that God counted his faith as righteous because his faith in itself was righteous. That's not what this verse is saying. And one of the reasons we know that is because of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 4. He explains this verse to us. So turn to Romans chapter 4 in your Bible. Think of what a problem it would be if your righteousness depended upon you having perfectly strong, pure, humble, holy faith. Does anyone here have that kind of faith? No. We're glad you have faith. But none of us has perfectly strong, righteous, pure, holy faith. I don't, and you don't. But there's good news here for us. Look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Start with verse 3. He says, what does the scripture say? Abram believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. So he's quoting Genesis 15:6 right there in the book of Romans. And then the next two verses, Paul explains that verse. He says, now, to one who works, Abram believed, but he wants to contrast it with, instead of believing, if you focus on working, obeying God, to one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Okay, if you work for someone and they give you money, you owed it, or they owed it to you. you. You earned it, right? And too many people think that we work in obedience for God, and so we earn righteousness from God. Paul's saying that's not how it works. Verse 4. Here's how it works, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, there's lots we could talk about from these three verses. Let me point out one thing at this point. Notice that in verse 3, we read that God counted Abram's faith as righteousness. And then in verse 5, Paul says this meant that God justified the ungodly. Do you see that? Now, that's shocking. What that means is Paul is saying that Abram was ungodly when God counted his faith as righteousness. Do you see that? Verse 3 is explained by verse 5. So why does Paul say he was ungodly? I'm still working on that, but here's a, a quote from John Piper that helped me, okay? Here's how he explains it. He says, the point of the word ungodly here, he's talking about Romans chapter 4, verse 5. The point of the word ungodly here is to stress that faith is not our righteousness. In other words, when God justified Abram, it's not because Abram had perfectly righteous faith. None of us ever has perfectly righteous, holy, strong, pure 
faith. Our faith is never as humble, strong as it should be. God counted his imperfect, weak, struggling, tinged with pride and impure motives, faith as righteousness. Now see, that this is very encouraging to me, and I hope you are encouraged by it as much as I am, because I'm almost always keenly aware of the defects in my faith. And the truth is, this side of heaven, none of us are sinless, right? Even our best obedience is tinged with pride or, or impure motives, right? Let's just be honest. That's what the Bible teaches. And we search our hearts and we say, yeah, that, that's true. That's how it is. But the Bible teaches that, that any genuine faith, and by genuine I mean we're trusting Jesus, we're simply saying, help me, Jesus, I trust you, save me, forgive me, change me, help. Even, even any genuine faith as weak and as struggling as it might be, brings an outpouring of God's favor. A verse to look at for this, remember Jesus said, how big faith do you need to, to bring God's mountain-moving power? How big does that faith need to be? A mustard seed size. Isn't that encouraging? My dad likes to say, anybody can muster a mustard seed of faith. Does that make sense? And anyway, that's, that's just America. Anyway, so the, the point, I mean, look at who Jesus is. Look at his power. Look at the cross. Look at the resurrection. Anybody can muster a mustard seed and trust him. And even just a mustard seed of faith brings mountain-moving power from God. But see, the point is, it's not Abram's faith that is in itself righteous, and it's not your faith that is in itself righteous. So if you're coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm full of pride and jealousy and lust and greed, but I'm, I'm looking to you, help me. Oh, he smiles. Outpourings of grace are coming. Not because of the righteousness of your faith, though. So are, are, we, are we clear on that? It's not the righteousness of our faith that makes us righteous before God. So important. This verse is not saying that Abraham is righteous because he has perfectly righteous faith. Because Paul says when God justified him, he was justifying the ungodly, including Abraham. Third, this verse is saying that God counted Abram's faith as a lifetime of perfect righteousness. Let me illustrate it like this. It's not like Abram had 37 righteousness points before Genesis 15, 6. And after he believed God for that promise, it went from 37 to 39. Like he got two more righteousness points added on to him, and he's moving his way towards 100. That's not what's being talked about here at all. And the reason is, again, because of what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, Verse 5, let's read it again. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Underline that word, justifies. To be justified means to have a change of status from unrighteous to righteous. It means a change of status from being, having unrighteousness to being perfectly righteous. 
That's what it means to be justified. It doesn't mean you become a little bit more righteous. It means you go from being unrighteous to being righteous. So picture Abram. Okay, he had genuine faith in God, but he was not perfectly righteous. We saw that back in chapter 12. Remember that where he asked Sarah to lie about being married to him to save his own skin? And remember all that mess in chapter 12? Okay? And even here, his faith is not perfectly righteous. But God counted Abram's imperfect faith as a lifetime of perfect righteousness. God was saying that Abram's past is now perfectly righteous. Abram's present is now perfectly righteous. Abram's future is now perfectly righteous. God counted Abram's faith as a lifetime of perfect moral righteousness. Now, that ought to make you start to scratch your head at this point, saying, how is that possible? How, why would God do that? Let's ask that question. How can God count Abram's faith as a lifetime of perfect righteousness? It's only because of what Jesus Christ has done. Here's where Jesus' blameless, righteous life, sacrificial death on the cross, and resurrection becomes, comes to the fore. And to see this, look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Here's what Paul writes. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, lots going on there, but let me illustrate what's going on here by using these boards now. Here's what's going on. Let me, let me get them all set up here. Okay. This board is the board of Jesus, all right? And then this board is the board of you and me. Not a pretty picture for you and me, is it? Here's what's going on. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that Jesus knew no sin. Jesus never sinned. Jesus is the only human being who's ever lived who is perfectly morally righteous. He was fully God. He's also fully man. And he's the only person, man, human being, who's ever lived with perfect moral righteousness. And so Jesus had perfect love for the Father, perfect love for others, purity, joy, truth, mercy, peace, hope, kindness. Jesus has perfect moral righteousness. Never, ever sinned. Always trusted the Father perfectly, always obeyed instantly, always perfectly loved people around him, never any sin in him. That's Jesus. Okay? But then here's our board. All right? We have sinned. We've sinned lots. Pride, hate, gossip, anger, jealousy, lust, greed, and the list just goes on. Okay? So, I see myself there. I hope you see yourself there. So before we were saved, 
Our boards were just full of sin. Even our best actions weren't done because we loved God and wanted to glorify Him. It's because we wanted to impress other people or we were hoping to earn something from God or maybe feel better about ourselves. God wasn't really part of the picture. And so we all had sinned. And before we were saved, because of our sin, we were cut off from God. Couldn't have the joy of knowing God. That's the joy we were created for. We were empty as a result. So we were separated from God and we faced His punishment forever. That's the, that's the picture of us before God saved us. But Paul says that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin. So what does that mean? That means the moment that, that you, I, look to Jesus with genuine faith, Jesus, I'm unrighteous, I'm facing your judgment rightly. I need to be forgiven. I need to be changed. I want to know you. You are glorious. You're beautiful. You, the moment you look to Jesus with, with genuine faith, you are joined to Jesus in his death. And so his death became your punishment for your sins. And so the moment you put your trust in Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So all of your sin was put upon Jesus. Now think about that. All of your sin, all the judgment for your past sin, all the punishment you deserve for your present sin, all the punishment you are facing for your future sin, all of that judgment, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. And so the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, this is amazing, all of that sin was put upon Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago, and it was punished in Jesus. Now, if all of your sin was punished in Jesus, how much more punishment are you going to face from God? None. None. But it doesn't stop there, okay? God did make him, Jesus, to be sin, but God also says that because of this, we become the righteousness of God. So your faith in Jesus doesn't just connect you with his death so he pays for all your sins. Your faith in Jesus connects you with his life of perfect moral righteousness. And at that moment when you put your trust in Jesus, not only does all your sin get put upon Jesus and punished in Jesus, but Jesus' perfect moral righteousness is given to you as a covering. It doesn't mean that you become perfectly morally righteous. Every saved person grows in becoming more righteous. That's not what we're talking about here, though. What this means is that your faith joined you to Jesus' perfect moral righteousness, and from that point on, when God sees you, he sees you as covered with Jesus' perfect moral righteousness. Now, this is glorious news. Oh, the implications of this are beautiful and freeing and liberating. Now, again, don't, don't misunderstand. It's not that you become perfectly loving, pure joy, all these things. You are growing in that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every saved person is becoming more and more obedient and more and more righteous in that way. That's not what this is illustrating. What this means is that the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, genuine faith in Jesus Christ, all your sin punished in Jesus, all of Jesus' perfect moral righteousness given to you as a gift, it covers you. You don't become perfectly morally righteous, but you're covered with his perfect moral righteousness. That's what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 
5, verse 21. And that's what happened when God counted Abram's faith as righteousness. Now read Genesis 15, 6 again. That's what's going on back in Genesis 15. And he believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to Abram as righteousness. God saw Abram's faith, imperfect as it was, connecting him to what Jesus would do on the cross in the future. And because Abram's faith was, was in God and connected to the Son of God on the cross, all of Abram's sins were punished in what Jesus would do 2,000 years in the future. And Abram's faith connected him with Jesus' perfect moral righteousness. And so God saw Abram, and he saw his faith connecting him to Jesus, and so he counted Abram's faith as a lifetime of perfect moral righteousness because Abram's faith connected him to Jesus in his perfect moral righteousness. That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Now, this is the doctrine of justification by faith. I hope you love hearing about doctrine. Okay, doctrine should not, not dull our affections for God. Doctrine should delight us with God all the more. We want to be a church with a rock-solid foundation of doctrine here, and to be set and clear on the, the doctrine of justification by faith is absolutely crucial. Every religion has to answer the question, how do sinful people become right with God? Most every other religion, people have come up with these ideas, well, you know, you, you offer, you, know, you, you buy baskets of of candy and fruit, as we've, we saw in, in one country, and you, you go to the temple and you offer it down before, before the idol. Or some people say, well, you, you have to go and confess to someone and have penance, and that's how you become more righteous before God. Or, or you do this, or you do that. But none of those work, because all, that just moves us maybe from like 37 points to 38 points, but we'll never be free from unrighteousness. And look at the past unrighteousness. But look at God's love for us. This is astonishing because this cost the Father and the Son. Do you see what this cost the Father? To not spare His own Son, but to deliver Him to the cross, to the scourging, to the beatings. That's what it cost the Father. And think of what it cost the Son to set His face to go to Gethsemane, to go towards Calvary, to go towards the cross. But this was the only way sinful people like us could be forgiven for all of our sins and perfectly righteous so we can be welcomed into God's presence. It's by God the Father, God the Son, doing this. God sent Jesus, punished Jesus on the cross for our sins. Jesus went to the cross. He lived a perfectly morally righteous life. And so everyone who turns and puts trust in Jesus, weak trust, not perfect trust, just heartfelt trust. Instantly, instantly, all your sins punished in Jesus, past, present, and future, and Jesus' perfect moral righteousness, a lifetime's worth, given to you as a gift to cover you. And so now when God sees you, when God sees you, He sees you as perfectly righteous in Christ. Do you see that? Now here's a couple of implications of this. So powerful. Have you stumbled in sin this past week? And this morning you're feeling guilty because of that. Well, guilt can be a good thing. It can be a gift from God if, we, if it drives us to Him. But so what do you do if you've stumbled in sin this week? Don't think you need to go and do penance 
to try to make up for what you did before God will move towards you with love and acceptance again. No. Don't think you need to go and, well, I've got to go and do some obedience here. Do some like kind things for people. You know, I've got to do something nice so I can kind of gain some righteousness points in my account and maybe that'll be enough to, no. What should you do if you have stumbled in sin this week? Look to Jesus by faith. That's all. Just, you turn to him and say, Jesus, look at me. I trust you. And he's moving towards you with love, moving towards you with grace, moving towards you with power. Why? Because your faith will assure you that all my sins have already been punished in Jesus. And his perfect moral righteousness is covering me right now. And he, the Father, see me as perfectly morally righteous in him. And so by faith alone, you're reconciled. You're assured of your salvation. You're assured of forgiveness. Relationships reestablished. Do you see how beautiful that is? Now listen, some of you I am sure because I've been there and I can still go there. When, when you've sinned, you feel like you, you can't come right to God. You've got like to make, make up for it first before you can come back to him. Like, I, I couldn't go to church because of what I did this last week, or I couldn't do this because of what I did this last week, right? We all tend to think that way. It's completely, well, it, it would make sense to think that if that's how God was. That's not how God is. This is how God is. Full of love, full of costly mercy. And it's true, you turn back and you say, Jesus, help me, and you are instantly assured, forgiven for all your sins, yes. Clothed with Jesus' perfect righteousness, yes. Reestablished with God, and it'll just make you weep sometimes. How can that be? Because of this. Do you see that? So that's what you do if you've stumbled in sin. Let me also point out an implication of this. We also can struggle with being self-righteous. If Satan can't make you unrighteous, he'd be glad to have you be self-righteous. Either will destroy you spiritually. Self-righteousness is where you think, well, God's going to answer my prayer because, well, I, I worked hard at my job this week, and I, I did go to church. Actually, the last three weeks I went to church, right? And I, I don't think I've sworn for probably four or five days now, right? Isn't, isn't that very, very common? See, that's self-righteousness. If you think the reason that God loves you is because, well, I'm better than George over here, or if you think the reason he loves you is because, well, you did this and this and this. See, listen, that is a lie from Satan, and that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ and Christianity. That's another world. You see that? Let this show you. You, me, we have no righteousness that deserves anything good from God. We don't. Let that just humble you. And that's why it's so beautiful what he's done for us. We deserved only judgment forever. I mean, he, he could look as deep into our hearts as he wants and the picture doesn't get any better. That's all we deserved. And he sent his son. He loves us. He cares for us. So let this encourage you when you sin to come right back to Jesus. Right? I know it's humbling, isn't it? Oh, if we could just do a few things to, to, you know, get our righteousness points up, that makes us feel a little bit more proud. It's totally humbling to say, Jesus, here I am. Look what I've done. I trust you. He says, I'm glad you're back. I forgive you. I have forgiven you. You know you're forgiven. So let this humble you. 
Let this encourage you to go straight to Jesus when you've stumbled in sin, and let this rid your life from self-righteousness. It's a deadly curse. Oh, Lord, make us free from that here at Grace Church. Make me free from it more. So this is the doctrine of justification by faith. Let me restate it. The moment you turn to Jesus Christ with not perfectly righteous faith, just heartfelt faith, I trust you. I trust you as my Savior. I trust you as my Lord. I trust you as my treasure. Help me. Change my heart. Strengthen me. The moment you look to Jesus and just say, help all your sins put upon Jesus and punished in Jesus, all of them, and all of Jesus' perfect moral righteousness given to you to cover you as a gift. And so you are now righteous, perfectly morally righteous in Christ. One other implication, I was just thinking about this this morning. When I'm on my deathbed, and you're on your deathbed, and you think, I'm, I'm on the brink of eternity, don't start to list off for yourself what you did for the Lord. Because you'll be able to list lots of other stuff you didn't do for the Lord. And lots of stuff you did that wasn't for the Lord. And lots of stuff, and, and just don't go there because it's, it's not how God does it, and you'll never get a good answer unless you're completely deluded, okay? So when I'm on my deathbed, it's going to be Jesus. It's your righteousness. It's being righteous because of your righteousness. It's, it's me being clothed in your righteousness. That's how I can know for sure I'm going to go to heaven. How righteous were you? Ooh, you, you were righteous, perfectly righteous. And that's my righteousness by faith alone. Do you see that? Oh, what a God. Okay, so that takes us up through verse 6. Now, what about the rest of the chapter, verses 7 through 21? I puzzled over these verses. Remember my father said that when you study the Scripture, you want to follow the author's train of thought, follow his flow of thought. So I said, okay, Moses has just emphasized Abraham was justified by faith alone here in Genesis 15, 6. So now, what's the rest of these verses? And I think what Moses is doing, he's telling us what's true for those who are justified by faith. What is true for those who are justified by faith? Three things. First, God will fulfill all his promises to us. That's verse 7. So right after verse 6, God counts his faith as perfectly righteous because it connects him to Jesus' perfect righteousness. God says to him, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So God reaffirms, I'm going to fulfill all these promises to you. And again, the reason he could fulfill all these promises is because Abram's sin was all punished in Jesus, and Jesus' perfect righteousness was given to Abram, and so God sees Abram as perfectly morally righteous in Christ, and so God's going to, I'm going to guide you, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to forgive you, I'm going to strengthen you, I'm going to comfort you, I'm going to raise you from the dead. All of God's promises will be fulfilled for everyone who's justified by faith in Christ, which means as you're trusting Christ, you can be assured all of God's promises will be fulfilled for you. Second, God will strengthen our faith whenever we draw near to him. Verse 8, but Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? See, his faith is weak here. Do you see that? Do you all see Abram's faith is weak here? He's struggling with faith. Look what God does. 
in verse 9. Abraham brings his weak faith to God. He asks God for help. How am I going to know? Verse 9, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, I'm not entirely sure what this ceremony means. There's different theories. I mean, I've read a couple different possibilities, but Abram understood what this ceremony meant. And God was doing this to strengthen Abram's faith. Abram has asked, how am I to know? And this is God's answer. Here's how you're going to know. And so again, I just want to encourage you. When your faith is weak, don't stay away from God thinking, I've got to have stronger faith before I would come into God's presence. Look at how weak I am right now. That's not what to do. When your faith is weak, turn to him just as you are and say, I trust you to strengthen my faith. Help me. And he will help you just like he does with Abram here. Third, God will use trials to bring us great blessings. I think what's going on in verses 12 to the end is Moses wants to make sure we understand that those who are justified by faith will go through trials. You could think that those who are justified by faith well, they're clothed with God's perfect moral righteousness. They're forgiven for all their sins. Surely they're not going to go through any trials, will they? Well, and then they will. But see, how many of us, when we go through trials, one of the first things we think is, I wonder if God's punishing me. But again, all your sins have already been punished in Jesus. And that's what I think Moses wants to help us understand here. Look at verses 12 through 13. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. I think it was dreadful because of what God says next in verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Abram, your offspring are going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. That's a lot of suffering. We're in 2017 right now. This would take you back to 1617 when it would have started. That's a lot of suffering, okay? But the suffering is temporary. God uses trials to bring us great blessings. That's what we read starting in verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, your offspring, shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That's a picture of God's presence. And what's going on here is on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The point being, when trials come, you're trusting Jesus. Don't think God's punishing you. 
By faith alone, you are completely justified. All your sins already been punished. So yes, God is allowing trials to come to you, but he only does that for his justified ones because he's going to bring them great blessings out of that trial. I mean, some of you are probably in the thick of a trial, deep trials right now. You're trusting Christ. Don't think he's punishing you. Yes, he's allowed this trial to come because great blessings, great joy in Christ, great nearness to Christ for sure promised. Who knows what else? But God only allows trials to come to his justified ones because he's going to bring them great blessings. So don't be discouraged by your trials. Don't be downhearted because of your trials. Don't be downcast because of your trials. Persevere, abound in hope, trust the Lord. Great blessing is coming. Now, a couple final words. Grace Church, understand that the only way we are righteous before God can be accepted by God is by faith in Christ alone. Faith joins us to his death, which paid for our sins. Faith joins us to his perfect moral righteousness, which covers our remaining sin. It's all because of Jesus. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what that song means. My hope is not built on how righteous I've been. That is sinking sand. And it could become self-righteousness, which would be deadly. Your hope, build it on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. How righteous was Jesus? Perfectly righteous. How can you know you're going to go to heaven? Because he was perfectly righteous. And I'm, even with weak faith, I'm, I'm, trusting, I'm trusting him. Weak faith in a strong Savior brings us perfect righteousness. So let this humble you as you realize that the reason you're righteous is not because you and yourself are righteous, but because your faith connects you to the one who is completely righteous. Let, let's be a humble people, okay? And let this strengthen you as you realize no matter how far you've wandered from God, no matter how weak your faith might be, no matter how far you might feel from God, you can turn with a mustard seed of faith and say, help me. And he is moving towards you with omnipotent power to strengthen, to encourage, to bless, to fill, to draw you to himself. A mustard seed. Now, what if you're here and you're not trusting Jesus and you've never trusted Jesus? Do you see what incredible news this is? Faith in Jesus Christ alone turning to Jesus and say, I see your love, I see your beauty, I see your majesty, I see what you've done on the cross, I trust you. Forgive me, change me, fill me, clothe me with your perfect righteousness. Faith alone in Jesus Christ will change your status this morning from unrighteous and facing God's judgment to perfectly righteous in Christ, awaiting his destiny forever in heaven. I urge you, trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. He loves you. He cares for you. Trust Jesus. Let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. <laughs> Father, I pray that Genesis 15, 6 would be deeply 
burned into our hearts this morning. That it's by faith alone that we're joined to Jesus in his death, paying for our sins, and in this perfect life of righteousness, covering our remaining sin. I pray that our hope as Grace Church would be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. Rid us of any self-righteousness, Father. It's so easy to go there. Cleanse us from that. We confess that. We repent of it. Free us from it, Father, we pray. Bring us in a fresh way, humbly to the foot of the cross, clinging to the cross alone, loving your righteousness alone. Do that, I pray. And Lord, for any here who are not yet trusting Christ, Lord, today, today, have them trust Christ and have their destiny status changed from unrighteous to perfectly righteous because of Christ. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your care for us. We worship you. Amen.